A scripture reading from Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was, under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that you've given us, for this time where we can be reminded of your great love for us. And we thank you that each and every week we get to come into your presence. And though we can't see you physically, we get to encounter you. I thank you for inviting us here into worship, but also here to your table, God. So Lord, as we we look at this text, we ask that your spirit would be present, that he would be active and moving, that he would show us your goodness and your love. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Well, this last week I started a a podcast. It was a true crime, murder mystery sort of thing. And I started it thinking, like, okay, cool, I've got some new material, this will last me a while. Finished it in three days. The whole thing. Now, there weren't that many episodes, they were all short, so I wasn't just, like, sitting there. But I got through them very quickly, and one of the things that was was funny is that every episode started with a, like, previously on. And I was like, I know. I know exactly what happened because I just listened to it. But church is one of the few things left in our culture that's not really bingeable. And so I thought before we get, or you can try, um, but I thought before we get into our text, those, those three verses that were just read, we, we should take a little bit of time to do a previously on. Right. So let's set, the, let's set the stage a little bit. We've been walking for the last several weeks through the life of Moses, and when we began our journey, the people of Israel were in trouble. They were in the land of Egypt, and God had been good to them there. They were fruitful, and they multiplied. Well, this caught the eye. This caught the attention of the king of Egypt, which are uh, referred to as pharaohs. And their success, the success of the people of Israel made him nervous. And in chapter 1, he said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. And so he enslaved the Israelites, putting them under hard labor. But God continued to bless them. So Pharaoh then attempted to kill all the baby boys of the Israelites, first by enlisting midwives who were brave enough to stand up to the most powerful man in the world at the time. They refused to obey his order. So he tried again, this time issuing a decree that all baby boys born to Israelites need to be cast into the Nile. 
Well, this plan backfired royally because it brought Moses, whom God planned to use to liberate the people of Israel, right into his own household. Moses, as a three-month-old, was put into a basket and sent down the Nile where he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, who then raised him as, his, as her own. And through Moses, and this is a fascinating aspect of the Exodus story, through Moses, God brought about all of the things that Pharaoh feared. See, because Pharaoh tried to put himself in the place of God and he acted with evil, killing and enslaving, he started a war with Yahweh. And God brings about plagues and through them he decimates Pharaoh and his nation. And the climax of this comes in Exodus 14 when God separates the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could cross on dry land. And when the Egyptians pursued them, God brought the sea back on top of Pharaoh, wiping out his army. Pharaoh started a war that God finished. And as a result, Israel escaped from the land, again, confirming all of Pharaoh's fears. Now we encounter the people of Israel out of Egypt, but they are in the wilderness. And it is here that they need to learn how to live as the people of God. And they're being tested, asked to trust in God. And in the section that immediately precedes our text, they are given the law. God gives the people the Ten Commandments and expands on them from there and says, if you're going to be my people, this is what you must do. This is who you must be. And the people agree. And a little bit earlier in chapter 24, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, the people, after hearing what God requires of them, say to God, and all the people answered with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right, so that concludes our previously on. Now, one of the things that I find fascinating is that after laying down the law, Right, literally, God, is lay, he, God has laid down the law from chapter 20 through 23. Three chapters of law. After doing that, after saying, this is what you've got to do, this is who you must be in order to be my people, what does God do? Well, in verses 9 through 11, we see he doesn't give a series of tests. He doesn't have them uh, think through the different hypotheticals. You know, if this happens and this happens, then what about this law? We're not not studying case law. We're not studying nuances. He doesn't start by judging the people for all of the ways that they've already broken the laws that he's just established. No, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, what does he do? He invites them to have a meal with him. He invites them to his table. Now, I'm Italian on my mother's side of my family. And in my extended family, like the table is a big deal. My mom talks about growing up, her grandmother lived uh, just down the street from, from where she grew up, and both her grandparents were from Italy, and they, they invited the grandkids to come over, and they'd oftentimes, you know, come over for lunch, and, you know, there'd be a plate of cold, ca- cold cuts spread out, and, and they'd just feast together, and they would laugh and talk at the table and go on and on and on for hours, and in that time, my, gran- my great-grandmother would inevitably, like, clear the plate, clear the table from the lunch that they just had and start putting out things for dinner and everyone would still be around the table. The table is a big deal. Tables are meeting places. 
They are places of intimacy, places where bonds are formed. Growing up in school, the people that you ate with, those were your people. You are oftentimes defined by the people that you, that you shared a, a lunch meal with. Tables are sacred spaces. So how powerful is it that after establishing all of his expectations, after revealing himself through fire and thunder, God invites his people to a table where they get to see and share a meal with God. And I think this scene on the mountain tells us some important things about our relationship with God. And we're going to draw out three points. First, the terms of our relationship with God, the approach we should take to our relationship with God, and God's invitation into relationship. So let's start with the terms. In verses 9 and 10, we are told, or verses nine, verse 9 in the beginning of verse 10, we're told this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70, excuse me, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Right, here in these verses, the God of the Bible invites Moses and Aaron and his two sons and the leaders of Israel to come into his presence. Now, this was a rather shocking thing, and our text goes on to imply that uh, by pointing out in verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, but they beheld God and ate and drank. See, throughout Scripture, seeing God is always presented as a dangerous thing. As God goes on to say later in Exodus 33:20, man shall not see me and live. That's why Moses points out in verse 11 that God didn't lift his hand against the people of Israel when they saw him. But God makes an exception here. Now, we'll go on to talk about what they saw, and I think that will uh, help us to understand that what we're, what we're seeing in this text isn't a contradiction of Exodus 33. But the verses leading up to this, uh, to this event quite clearly lay out the terms of our relationship with God, why they are able to approach God, why he, why he allows them into his presence. See, after giving nearly three full chapters of law, God tells the people towards the end of chapter 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So this angel who will go before Israel is described in ways that closely identify him with God himself. And the Lord tells the people not to rebel against him because his name is in him, implying God's nature and character. And that to obey this, this angel's voice is to do all that God himself says. So what portion of God's commands are the people to listen to? <laughs> all that I say. And this is exactly what the people agreed to, as I pointed out earlier in chapter 24, verse 3. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God establishes here the terms of our relationship with him. What are we to obey? 
all that the Lord has spoken. My kid's favorite phrase right now is, how about? Um, Katie and I will, will tell them to do something, and they are pretty quick to respond with, well, how about? They want to negotiate, right? Oliver, in particular, is always looking to make a deal. But how often does that define our approach to God? God, I know you said this, but how about, look, I'm good with a good portion of what you call me to, but you don't really expect me to listen to everything you said, do you? To which God says, well, actually, see, we're called to come humbly, ready to listen, and not called to negotiate. So I want you to consider for a moment, where do you find yourself trying to negotiate with God? Perhaps there's someone in your life and you know that you need to forgive, but it just feels better to remain angry. Maybe everyone around you is cheating in some capacity, and life would be so much easier if you just did too. You find yourself negotiating there. Maybe God is calling you to reach out to someone in need or someone who's difficult, and you're thinking, but what about my comfort? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Those are the terms. So we need to come humbly, ready to do all that the Lord commands of us. But there is another stipulation. We also need to come cleansed. Before we get to the meal, there's a particular, a peculiar event. In verse 5, we're told that the people offered sacrifices as a way of affirming the promise that they just made. And this shows us the nature of the relationship they were entering into with God. They were entering into what's called a covenant. The theologian Michael Horton defines a covenant in this way. He says, A covenant is a relationship of oaths and bonds and involves mutual, though not necessarily equal, commitments. Now, that might sound rather cold and forensic, but Horton points out These were not merely legal contracts, but involved the deepest affections. The great king was the father adopting the captives he had liberated from oppression. Consequently, he was not simply to be obeyed externally, but loved. So a covenant is this unique and wonderful blend of law and love, of responsibility and relationship. And probably our best modern-day equivalent to this type of relationship is marriage, which the Bible calls a covenant in in Malachi 2.14. And this is likely why God uses marriage imagery to describe his relationship to his people. Now, at that time, when covenants were enacted, there was often some sort of ritual involving blood, and that is part of what we see being described earlier in chapter 24. But there's also a cleansing element to the blood. Which is why in in this chapter that describes this covenant ritual, blood is thrown on the altar, but it is also sprinkled on the people. See, though the people have enthusiastically agreed to abide by the laws laid out by God, the reality is that they have broken his laws many times over already, and that they are going to continue to do so. See, the reason that we can't look at God on our own is because we're sinful. And our sin has to be dealt with if we're going to draw near. So God, in his grace, in chapter 24 of Exodus, provides a way. 
Now, there are many today that, that see this talk of forgiveness and guilt as remnants of a bygone era. But thinkers like Wilfred McClay, an academic, an academic and historian, has written about the, quote, strange persistence of guilt that remains in Western cultures today. Even though we, in large part, have shed categories like sin and guilt, even though in large part we've relativized morality, denying the existence of a true standard by which we can all be judged, we still can't shake the feeling that there is something wrong with us. And over the last two decades, books on healing, healing shame and guilt by, by writers like John Bradshaw and Brene Brown and many others have been read and listened to by millions of people. And other terms like low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, self-loathing, they map directly onto what has traditionally been called guilt and shame. Those categories haven't gone away no matter how hard we've tried to shake them. See, deep down, we know that we need forgiveness. We need cleansing, which God provided at the mountain through the blood of the covenant, and which God provides at his table today through the cup of the new covenant, which represents the blood of Jesus that he shed for us. See, this is the ultimate solution to our need for forgiveness. All right, so those are the terms of our relationship. We need to come humbly ready to obey, and we need to come cleansed. So now let's look at the approach. How should we approach God? Well, in verse 10, we read this, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. All right, so we're told that the elders here saw the God of Israel. They saw him, and they lived to tell about it. And what do we have as a description of the event? This is like the event of their lives. And what do they have to say about it? Well, there was a pavement under God's feet, and it was really blue. And what does this imply? You notice, they, they don't say anything else. Nothing about the form of God, nothing about anything else. They, they, they notice the pavement under his feet. Again, what does that imply? What does that tell us? It means that at the sight of God, they immediately fell down, prostrate, and worshiped. And friends, I think that that is a natural reaction to beholding greatness. Now, a silly example of this I don't know ex exactly when this started, but for the last several years, if you watch a, a, an NBA game, if something great happens on the floor, what, is, what do the benches do? They go nuts, like jumping up and down, falling flat, just, just crazy, to the point where now there is a rule uh, that has a name. It's the Theo Pinson rule to try to crack down on, on bench celebrations during an NBA game. They're, they're becoming too disruptive. But up to this point, players on the bench engage in all kinds of displays. And inevitably, every time I've seen this, inevitably there is someone, after they see something great, they just fall. They just like fall down on the floor. It's like, this was too amazing to behold. I don't know what to do with myself, so I'm just going to collapse. 
It's like they can't handle what they've just seen, so they, they fall down. Again, it's a silly example, but don't you find yourself doing that when you behold something that is truly amazing? When you see just an incredible feat somewhere or, or, or encounter an amazing view, it's like you've got to look away. It's, it's just too good. It's too powerful. It's too beautiful. Well, that is exactly what's happening here. That the elders beheld God and their immediate reaction is to just fall down before him. Because the sight of him is the greatest thing they have ever beheld. It's the thing that their hearts have always longed for. I was watching a show recently, and um, I didn't like the show, but there's something that, about it that, that stuck with me. It's about a family, and they have a new baby, and the baby for a, a season goes missing. I have kids. I don't like shows where babies go missing. Well, and the parents, when this happens, uh, are understandably in, in agony. And the mother, who is not a religious person, begins praying, begging God to bring her baby back. And to her, in that moment, if she gets her baby back, everything will be okay. Right? Everything is going to be right. Nothing matters. Not her career, not her home. Nothing matters if she doesn't have her child. Well, spoiler alert, they end up getting their baby back. And she's grateful. And a little time passes. And some things start to go wrong. And she has a major event at her work that, that just goes horribly. And things start to spiral from there. And there's this scene with her on the floor of her baby's nursery. And she's sitting there with her husband and, and her son is tucked in and sleeping peacefully. She's gotten her greatest wish. She has her son. Nothing else should matter. But other things matter to her. She finds that she's not okay, and she tells her husband with, with a genuine sense of confusion. She thought everything was going to be all right when she got her son back, but it's not. Why? Well, because, and the show does not go on to explore this, but this is my hypothesis, it's because she has a need, a desire that no mere human is able to fill. She has, as we all do, what the theologian Karl Barth refers to as an incurable God sickness, a desire for God that nothing else can fill. Here in these verses, the elders of Israel get the thing that their hearts truly long for, and they are undone. And what characterizes their approach? Reverence. Awe, worship, and fear. Now, this word fear has, has some negative connotations, but the fear of the Lord is one of the most basic concepts that the Old Testament uses to describe godly character. It's the beginning of wisdom, right? But what does that mean? Well, I appreciate Tim Keller's definition. In one of his recent books, he explains that the fear of the Lord is best defined as a joyful awe and wonder before the transcendent greatness of who God is. The fear of God means to be affected deeply by who God is and what he did. So how should we approach God? With joyful awe and wonder before his greatness, deeply affected by who he is and what he has done. All right, so those are the terms and the approach. Now let's take some time to look at the invitation.
Let's look once again at what the leaders of Israel did on the mountain with God. They beheld God and ate and drank. Just seeing God would have been an unspeakable joy and privilege. It would have been the greatest, most glorious thing that they ever would have done or will ever do. That would have been the defining moment of their lives. But it didn't end there. The famous Puritan theologian agrees with my last point. John, John Owen says, one of the, seeing God is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of. Again, seeing God would have been more than any one of them could have ever asked for, could have rightly asked for. But in our passage, they are given an even greater privilege. For not only did they see him, they ate and drank with him. Now, we don't exactly know what they ate and drank. Maybe they had what was left of the fellowship offerings that were sacrificed down below, that they had sacrificed to the Lord. Maybe it was bread and water, if they had their fair share of bread and water at that point in their journey. Maybe it was bread and wine. Regardless of what it was, though, it was a meal of covenant fellowship. And in those days, it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't uncommon for people to make a covenant for people making a covenant to sit down and share a meal together afterwards. We see this in Genesis 26, 30, when Isaac made a covenant with Abimelech and his army. We read this, so he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Jacob and Laban shared the same kind of meal when they were reconciled after Jacob's escape. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Breaking bread was symbolic. It was a symbolic act of commitment and friendship. So Israel's leaders, eating and drinking on the mountain, showed that they had true fellowship with God. I think there are a few things that establish a a greater sense of fellowship than sharing a meal with someone. There's something about eating and drinking with other people that fosters friendship. But the power of a meal to, to bring people together is vividly portrayed in Isaac Dennison's story, Babbitt's Feast. It tells the story of two older women who take in a political refugee named Babbitt who lived with them as a servant. And while living with them, who they thought was a servant, um, unexpectedly wins a lottery. But instead of taking the money to to advance herself and her own interests, she offers to pay for and prepare an anniversary dinner for the community in honor of her host's father's birthday. Well, it turned out that Babbitt had been one of the greatest chefs of Paris, and the meal she planned was a gourmet feast. And although her guests are generally rude and unkind, often cantankerous, the feast forms the context for the restoration of old friendships, the rekindling of old loves, and the reconciliation of old enemies. Meals have a way of bringing people together. Any gathering is made more intimate when food is shared. So then consider how significant it is that the prophets and the priests and the elders of Israel ate and drank with God. 
The invitation to eat with him wasn't just enacting an old ritual. It was an invitation into genuine friendship. It was an invitation into relationship. And the themes of eating and drinking with God run all the way through Scripture. The Bible often describes our relationship with God in terms of sharing a meal. Listen to what David says in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to the day when God would sit down with his people at a great banquet, saying, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This prophecy was about the coming of God's kingdom when people from every nation would find a place at God's table. And then came Jesus, who regularly described his kingdom in terms of eating and drinking. Right? Where Jesus goes, a feast follows. And in Matthew 8, 11, he declared that his kingdom would be like a great banquet, saying, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus insisted that in him, the prophecy of Isaiah had come true, and that there was now a place for everyone at his table. And an important point of contrast between what we see in this text and what we get to experience now in the New Covenant, in our passage, it was only the leaders of Israel that got to go up to the mountain. But today, in Christ, we all get to come and feast at his table. It has been opened up for everyone. We all get a seat. And before Jesus' death, what did he leave his disciples with? A meal. In Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That reference to the blood of the covenant is an intentional callback to Exodus 24, 8. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And right now, God is at work handing out invitations to his feast. Every time that the gospel is preached, we are invited to eat and drink with God. And according to the Bible, all of history culminates in a feast, something that Revelation 19.9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what all of the covenant feasts, Moses' meal, meal on God's mountain, the Lord's supper and the wedding supper of the Lamb, they show us that God wants a relationship with us. He invites us to sit down with him and share a meal He offers us this kind of of intimate fellowship that we have with our closest family and friends when we sit down together around our own tables. So consider, is that the type of relationship that you have with God? Is that the type of relationship that you want with God? To know him as your closest friend sitting down to eat and drink. How do we get that? Simply by faith, by trusting in Jesus, who says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me.
Do you want a cure to guilt and shame? Do you want to be known and loved? And do you want to know and love the God of the universe? Do you want a cure for your God sickness? Well, then accept God's invitation and dine with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the ways in which you reach down to us in love and grace. Father, we thank you that each week we come here, we receive an invitation to dine with you. Father, we thank you for offering us your friendship, your fellowship. We thank you for offering us yourself. And Lord, we recognize that that came at a cost. We are not worthy to come before you. But you took that cost on yourself. In order to achieve our forgiveness, you sent your son to die so that we could receive new life. Lord, help us to to trust in Jesus. Help us to trust that what he did for us was enough. And God, help us to respond to your invitation. Help us to come before your throne of grace with confidence so that we could share a meal with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.